Okay, I'm going to talk about the uh, political ecology and the way that uh, epidemiology and public health have uh, both been ecologized and how they emerge out of ecology and uh, how ecological discourses now um, are influencing uh, epidemiology, particularly in respect of things like uh, sustainability and health and climate change and health and so on. But I'll get onto that towards the end. My focus is going to be, first of all, on describing uh, human and political ecology. Then I'm going to talk about epidemiology and public health and, uh, and, and, and how they're constructed. And then about um, ecology and epidemiology. So starting off with, with human ecology, what is it? Um, at its simplest level, it's the interactions between humans and their environments. It privileges human beings. And uh, as part of this environment, there is the disease environment. There's the interaction of the two. And um, it can be seen in adaptive terms. And the orig origins of thinking about um, uh, ecology um, and disease in adaptive terms comes from the origins of ecology itself. So Ernst Haeckel uh, put the first serious documentation about ecology um, together in the 18, eight, uh, 1860s about the relations of living organisms to the external world. Uh, Darwin had hinted at this and had talked about ecology without um, developing um, the uh, uh, serious, uh, serious theory around it, but he'd done this in The Origin of Species. Uh, <clears throat> This, as a, a web of interrelations, could exist perfectly well, but it wasn't until um, ideas of energy and metabolism were brought into, uh, into ecology uh, that it started to be uh, developed in terms of energy flows within ecosystems. Cultural ecology, another construction of human ecology, was put forward by Julian Stewart in the 1950s about the relationships between a society and its natural environment, both past and present. It had an environmental determinist view, which was uh, severely criticised, but it's had a number of outflowings from it. Uh, first of all, economic anthropology, um, that only certain aspects of the economy are monetized. There are other aspects of e economies that are non-monetized. Ecological energetics, <clears throat> using a different kind of currency to examine human societies uh, through energy expenditure, for example, it's something that I did in my uh, early part of the, uh, part of my career. Um, and uh, also political ecology, which I'm going to expand on. <clears throat> There's also human behavioural ecology, which is trying to explain present-day societies in evolutionary terms, and evolutionary ecology, which looks at human evolution in ecological terms. What is political ecology? It's a study of how political, economic and social factors affect environmental issues on the one side. It's also how access to natural resources helps to structure political and economic life. And it's also how the impacts of social class and inequality um, have on the environment. So it's how uh, things are structured in relation to a whole range of, um, of environmental issues. <coughs> and it's also how um, humans act on their environments and how this um, influences uh, health and well-being. In most recent uh, times, um, this has engaged in issues of sustainability um, from, uh, uh, from the 1990s onwards. If I can give you some historical background, uh, very briefly, where does this sit in relation to the idea of things? Uh, uh, <clears throat> it sits in the origins of political economy. Hobbes, Adam Smith, Malthus, Ricardo, Marx, um, all had um, something to say about environment and its exploitation. Marx talked about the didactic between individuals, their productive activity in human society and nature, and political economy was something that um, transforms nature and is transformed by individuals and nature. Cultural ecology used concepts from ecology systems theory to examine the evolution of cultural practices and institutions in adaptive terms. So I've said this has had um, a, lot of, uh, um, a, lot of, a lot of critique. Um, but systems theory 
and complexity have arisen or emerged, re-emerged in recent times to examine particular, um, uh, particular health problems, for example. It's application to health and disease emerged with McCoy and Townsend's medical ecology, uh, the political ecology of disease with Tertian, and also in the 2000s with Tony McMichael, um, who is in Canberra, um, Bear and Singer, and so on. Um, so medical ecology has, uh, has, has taken on uh, political ecology and um, has taken on uh, uh, ecological perspectives. So political ecology of health, as a, as a particular component of this, is the blending of political economic with human ecological perspectives. So in a way, it's a hybrid um, that takes um, both from ecological theory um, and political economic theory to apply itself to particular kinds of issues. Now, of course, um, as issues of climate change, sustainability and so on uh, loom larger in um, uh, economic framings, um, then ecology also becomes larger in, in, in these framings. The two components of this, I've already said, you know, political economy is looking at tensions between the state and the market, um, wealth and power as a means of understanding the organisation of human society, and the human ecological is looking at the effects um, of political economic processes on human ecology. And that can be disaggregated in a, into a number of components, for example, demography, health, nutrition, and uh, the interactions between, uh, between all of those components. Now, what of epidemiology and public health? Uh, to historicise this a little bit, uh, epidemiology used to be about ecology before ecology was invented. Um, if we can um, go back to Hippocrates, um, he put forward words such as endemic, which is diseases that are seen in some places but not in others, and words like epidemic, that are things that are seen at some times but not at others. Um, <clears throat> among his writings, he wrote about the relationships between the occurrence of disease and, 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 and environment, and these words endemic and epidemic continue to be used to the present day. Um, Ecological ideas about disease patterning continued into medieval times. As Ibn al-Khattab in this particular, this particular statement says, um, who can say that the religious laws um, uh, denies disease um, while infection happens? We say that the existence of contagion, infection if you will, is established by experience, investigation, the evidence of the census, and trustworthy reports. These facts constitute a sound argument. The fact of infection becomes clear to the investigator who notices how he who establishes contact with the afflicted gets the disease, whereas he who is not in contact remains safe, and how transmission is affected through garments, vessels, and earrings. What about earrings? So... What's different now, and was different from the 18th and 19th century, was the um, statisticalization, progressive statisticalization of the study of disease patterns. Uh, in the Adam Smith's time, and in Malthus's time, demography was called was called uh, was called um, uh, political arithmetic. Um, it was seen understanding where people were um, and the population structures was fundamental to good governance, to be able to understand what was needed where and at what time. From the counting of heads, it was only a short step to counting of diseased heads. And with Villamay in the early 19th century, we looked at inequality in, um, in, uh, in, in mortality rates um, in Paris um, to the extended study of distribution and extent of disease um, across human populations. So statistical methods have been increasingly the method of, uh, of, 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 of epidemiology <clears throat> in that they could um, 
discern variations in disease patterns by geography, by age, by sex, by ethnicity, by social characteristics, by exposure to specific agents, according to susceptibilities. So the statisticalization of, uh, of the reporting could then be used to identify, if you will, uh, risk groups, um, to identify geographies of risk, to be able to identify geographies of susceptibility um, and, and uh, specific agents. It can also be used to look at variations in disease patterns across time. So trends, cyclicities, intervals between exposure to causal factors and disease onset. That is, exposure to one thing results in the, pres in, 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 in the presentation of the disease. Also, in trying to define what is endemic and what is endemic. If something is normal for uh, or normative in a, in a particular location, then it is endemic. If it's non-normative, it suddenly starts to increase relative to, 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 to usual patterns, then it could be identified as being epidemic. You need to have some knowledge of what is normative. Now, normative isn't always just a constant uh, background of, uh, of, of a, uh, the level of a disease. For example, we're now in the um, sixth week of, of, of Michaelmas term, uh, most people, have, who's, who's, who's had freshers' flu? Who's had an infection? It's nearly half the room has been infected. Welcome to Oxford, such a healthy place. Um, uh, who's still infected? Who's reinfected? Maybe. Okay. So, so most people, nearly half of the room has been through an infection at the beginning of term. This is normal. So to say that you come into Oxford and 40% and of a classroom gets infected in the first four weeks of coming to Oxford, that is normal. Why don't we advertise that in the brochure? I don't know. <laughs> it would send, send people away. Uh, but you can understand what I'm saying, that, that this is part of a seasonal pattern. You could go and look at malaria patterns, malaria transmission rates in Papua New Guinea or in an African country. And in some places there are seasonal patterns. We say, well, this is normal. There's always a seasonal increase and then a decline at the end of the season. It's when things happen in a different season or they happen at an extended rate, extend, a more extensive rate, that, uh, uh, that epidemiologists would, would, would start to pay, uh, pay attention. Um, <clears throat> Intervals between exposure to causative factors and disease onset. The problems of identifying causation are always problematic. How can you relate HIV infection to AIDS when AIDS is the presentation of many, many different diseases, for example, because, because HIV infection at some stage becomes a susceptibility to infectious diseases? How do you establish that, that, that chain of causation? How do you establish the relationship between um, smoking in your 20s and lung cancer in your 60s. There needs to be an element of, of, uh, of, of identifying you know, how risk can accumulate across a period of time. And, and, and epidemiology has used ever more uh, complex uh, uh, study designs to be able to identify causation. So there's a constant appropriation of methods and ideas from, from other disciplines. Um, types of epidemiology, again, to historicize, um, there have been many appropriations across uh, a long period of time. If we go to the 19th century, then <coughs> the dominant paradigm was one of miasma, and the approach taken was a clustering of morbidity and mortality, and without knowing that there were infectious agents, just knowing that there was an environmental clustering uh, to uh, um, diseases such as diarrhea, for example, typhoid, for example. <laughs> Public health practice, such as drainage, sewage, sanitation, could be used to, to, uh, to reduce uh, the morbidity and mortality from, from that particular clustering. From the 1880s, with germ theory, um, another approach emerges, the isolation of culture from disease sites, um, identifying specific disease agents that are biological, and then being able to demonstrate 
experimental transmission, that a disease can be transmitted from one individual to another. Uh, and then the practice becomes one of interrupting transmission. You could deal with malaria using miasma theory or germ theory. And in some ways, we still do. We don't need to know that there's a plasmodium involved in malaria transmission <laughs> to be able to uh, deal with, 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 with crowding and sanitation and, and reservoirs of water and so on. Um, if you do know that there's a plasmodium involved, then you could be looking for a biological solution to killing that plasmodium. Of course, as we go into the 20th century, we see the emergence of chronic disease epidemiology. The idea of a lifestyle um, um, epidemiology, that is individual risk. The way that you live your life will influence how you will uh, develop diseases in later life. That lends itself, of course, very easily to a, to a moralizing dis discourse. Uh, conversely, there is life course epidemiology, which says, well, actually, attributing causation is problematic because you are not just what you've done now. The diseases you will get across your life are not just in relation to the practices you engage in right now. They're in relation to your entire history of practices. They're in relation to, um, to your birth weight. They're in relation to your mother's health. And with epigenetics, they're in relation to your grandmother's health as well. So life course ep uh, epidemiology attempts to try and engage with the life course and far more difficult to do because to be able to demonstrate life course events, you really need studies of human life courses. And a human life, you know, oftentimes there's an end point, say somebody uh, having a cardiac event when they're in their 60s, and then you're relating that to risk factors by asking them retrospectively how you lived your life. And sometimes you've got very incomplete data. You don't know about their birth weight, for example. You don't know whether they breastfed, for example. You sometimes don't even know what all the risk factors are. So asking retrospectively gives you a, you know, washes out many of these effects. So there are, you know, studies, you know, one at Avon, for example, in the UK, that is attempting to do, to do life course epidemiology. This is hugely expensive. And how do you justify the funding for life course epidemiology? And you're saying, well... Um, you know, we don't really know what we expect to find. Uh, we all only know that what we have at the moment is severely flawed, and we've got to have a better method of doing it. Um, you know, there, there are different ways um, in which you can cheat on life course uh, uh, epidemiology by simply taking particular phases in people's lives and shingling together kind of pseudo-life courses of populations where you shingle together different stages and, and different risk factors across life. Okay, moving on, um, there are other kinds of epidemiology. Social epidemiology looks at social determinants of health. Um, and um, we'll consider infectious disease, chronic disease, um, but we'll sort things according to social variables of whatever kind they may be. And those social variables may be simply education, they may be simply income, they may be social class. But how these variables are constructed in different countries are different. So in the UK, you get a lot of discourse about social class, social class differences in health. Take that idea of social class to the United States, it doesn't work because people don't talk about social class. It's more about education and income, and that's how the data is collected. So there's an incommensurate bit. Uh, there's uh, a disconnect, use a simpler word that I can actually understand, uh, between um, uh, how inequality or variation, uh, social variation is seen in different countries according to, and, and how the data is collected. Cultural epidemiology was put forward in the 1990s as a way of looking at culture and health production using ethnographic methods, and the interruption, the practice of intervening there is one of behaviour change. Now, of course, uh, ethnographic methods don't fit so very readily into statisticalization. So incorporating culture into epidemiology is seen by many epidemiologists being an oxymoron. How can you incorporate culture into epidemiology when the kinds of 
data that you're collecting is rich ethnography. You're actually following individuals, talking to them intensively in the field. Uh, it doesn't turn itself into numbers about thousands of people. You know a lot about a small number of people. Uh, so one tendency has been for epidemiologists to use anthropology as a kind of cultural de- uh, as, as, as kind of cultural detective work. That is, can you identify the social variables that we're not capturing at the moment so that we can work out how to turn those into numbers? And then, of course, anthropologists say, you know, I am not your handmaiden, and therefore I refuse to do this work. And so, you know, so, so it goes on. Really, the best kind of cultural epidemiology happens when you have epidemiologists that are cool about qualitative work and, so, and, 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 and anthropologists who understand what quantification is and how it can happen. So, but it is a huge and uh, an open area. <clears throat> Genetic epidemiology um, is something that uh, has grown and grown and grown looking at genetics in families and populations. So um, genetic variants as risk factors, um, genetics of uh, particular disorders, and the approach is usually on a genetic screening. Um, and the practice, if you can't do anything about genetics, well, you can certainly counsel people about who you might or might not marry with respect to, with respect to uh, um, the likelihood of, of genetic disorders emerging in the next generation, for example. Eco-epidemiology has had a bit of time of never gained traction, which is a kind of Chinese false epidemiology. Look at structures um, across, um, uh, uh, across a hierarchy of levels. So it's saying, what could be a structural factor for a disease operates up here at a higher level. This affects individuals who are embedded in communities. So there are community level effects, there are individual level effects, there are family level effects. So all of these things sit in this kind of box within a box within a box within a box. So an explanation that will give you the, for uh, cardiovascular disease at, uh, at, uh, at the national level, for example, will be different to an explanation that you would give um, at, at the very local level. Um, finding leverage at the most efficacious level, that's the aim of this. So if you want to have an intervention, a epidemiological intervention, where do you find the best place to... Put, uh, 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 put, uh, uh, put your intervention into place. Um, the uses of epidemiology, historical study, is a community getting better or worse with respect to health? Uh, community diagnosis, can we see actual and potential health problems? The working of health services, in terms of their efficiency and efficacy, individual risks and chances, uh, with respect to uh, uh, insurance risks, with respect to health hazards appraisals. Uh, identification of syndromes. If something is new, it's been identified. Is it part of something one already knows, or is it something completely distinct? Should one lump this with what you know, or should you give it a different category? So epidemiology is also bound up in the use of categories, the creation of categories, the combining of categories, the separation of categories. Uh, I've mentioned the search for causes with case control and cohort studies. Um, these are attempts to, uh, to statistically uh, control for anything that could possibly confound uh, or interfere with the results of a study that you have. And I'm going to talk about that because there, there are particular problems with the use of case control studies and cohort studies, particularly a case and a control. How do you know that your control is matched as well as it can be for your, for your case? That's always, always problematic because there's always in, huge into biological individuality, leave alone anything else with respect to, with respect to, uh, no, with respect to that. The best case control is always going to be identical twins, um, but there are very few of those. Okay, it's also used in clinical decision analysis and evidence-based medicine. So, for example, in the UK, you have the uh, National Institute for uh, Clinical Excellence. They produce guidelines that clinicians are supposed to follow. And most of these come out of epidemiological studies that are then, uh, then say, well, the best course of action for this is the following. And uh, we consider this to be the most cost-effective. So this is what 
guides the clinical decisions that are, that are done in the UK. They're meant to be efficient and to save money in the end. Because we know that uh, nationalised or uh, socialised health is a bottomless pit in terms of finance. Um, what are the problems with epidemiology? Applying knowledge of the population to the individual, that you can know that the risk factors for cardiovascular disease are you know, smoking, overweight, uh, salty diet, high ten- high, hypertension, high-fat diet, and so on. How do you reduce that to the individual? How do you turn what is a population construct into something that can be effective for the individual? That is, if you know there are five risk factors for cardiovascular disease, how many of them can you feel certain about are really risk factors? So, for example, epidemiologically, um, a study could show that uh, that, uh, consuming five grams of salt per day, I'm taking a stupid example, uh, gives you an increased risk of cardiovascular disease of 50% over the population average. And that comes out as being statistically significant for a large population. At the individual level, you, can you say that this will raise the blood pressure uh, or increase the risk of cardiovascular disease by 50% of that individual? No, you can't, because for some people it won't make any difference. For other people, it will make a huge difference because there's great biological variability. So actually being able to take a risk factor back from a population-wide statisticalized study to the individual is, uh, is, 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 is difficult. With respect to the social, um, many of these problems I've, I've focused on the social is that there's no magic social variable. There's no magic simple thing that you can change that will make everything better. Um, you could say one thing that would help more than anything, that would be to eradicate inequality. And that's a very radical thing to say, because if you eradicate inequality, you're really talking about eradicating capitalism as well. And uh, that's a problem at this stage of uh, the history of the planet. Um, <laughs> the quantification of social information and the extent to which it can capture social process with, with, with health consequences. You can have a rich, rich ethnography, but then how do you turn that into numbers? How do you assume that somebody's mood, for example, um, can scale linearly on a score of from, from 0 to 10? You can't know. You can make the assumption that it does and put it into, into a, a statistical model, but you can't know, really, that people's mood doesn't go from 0 even if it doesn't go from um, uh, deeply unhappy to mildly unhappy from <coughs> a scale from, from 0 to 0.5, and then all the middle is kind of slow increases in affect. You can't know. You can't know whether the relationship's like that or that or that or who knows. You make the assumption um, that social information follows linear characteristics, and that's a big assumption because you can't know. And, so, and a lot of statistics depends... <laughs> on bell-shaped characteristics of the variables that it uses. That is, that for whatever trait you're looking at, let's call it happiness, that there'll be a, a, a kind of uh, a normalised state in the middle where most people are neither happy nor unhappy. There are a few people deliriously happy at the end of the scale, and nobody really likes them. Um, and there are some people who are deeply unhappy, and you never see them because they're locked in their bedroom. And... Uh, uh, you make that assumption, um, but you don't really know whether social variables necessarily follow a, a, a normalised distribution. Okay, different kinds of modelling, quantitative and quantification qualitative, statistical modelling, many different kinds. What is right, what is wrong? One of the problems <laughs> with statistical modelling is actually the cacophony of methods that are available. There's an awful lot you can do with statistical methods. What are the rules? Sometimes it's difficult to know. I've met mathematicians, uh, in status, mathematicians in statistics departments who are working on ideas of what is the optimal sample size for doing the, the right kind of study. You know, you can you can you can collect huge amounts of data, find tiny differences that are statistically different, and report that, and and report it into an eminent journal. But biologically, and in terms of health, it may have little importance. And you just achieve huge statistical significance because you've collected huge amounts of data. On the other hand, you might find what seems to be a big difference in 10 people, um, but you can't show statistical significance because you've only measured 10 people. This may be hugely important 
but you can, it might be a difficult thing to capture. You've captured it in 10 people, but you can't demonstrate statistical significance because you've only seen 10 people. So there's a real sort of toing and froing in, in terms of understanding what the right sample size is. And uh, there was one student, Nadine Levin, who finished her DPhil last year. Um, uh, really, it was an ethnography statistical practice in an eminent laboratory in, in, in London. Um, uh, and the problem there was that the, this metabolomics laboratory was producing so much data, they had to find ways of being able to represent that data meaningfully. When you, you don't just measure cholesterol for cardiovascular disease or the triglycerides, but you, all of the metabolites, and there's a thousandfold fat metabolites you could use, how do you turn that into something that is both tractable, statistically, and then can be interpreted by public health people for potential interventions, or for clinicians for, for, for clinical interventions? And what she found was something that I think anybody would expect, that in the course of doing the work, in the course of presenting the work, the seminars, it's not just this is objectively the right method, it's actually there are intuitions, there are beliefs, there are views, there's the experience of uh, more you know, prestigious members of the community that influences how those methods are done uh, and, uh, and how the statistics are done. Of course, when you get to the stage where there's a standard method for doing something and a standard statistical practice, already that part of, uh, of the public, of the epidemiological work is fixed and institutionalized. When it becomes fixed and institutionalized, then it's totally in the realm of public health practice because there's no more that you need to do in terms of developing the statistics to be able to illustrate more. It doesn't happen in many areas. It happened with respect to smoking and cancer, for example. It doesn't really happen in that many areas. Many areas. Okay, then an analysis of the analysts. Who chooses the nature of analysis and why? Data-driven analysis? Decision tree for nesting of analysis? What are the rules of statistical analysis? Some people say, actually, you shouldn't be hypothesis-driven. You should just look at the data and then just let the data do the talking. That is like statistical ethnography in many ways because it's, 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 it's like saying, look, you know, we know there's a, a great confusion of stuff and you know that voices will emerge from that stuff if you start to analyse it. And by doing that, we don't impose our pre... Uh, pre uh, um, predispositions on that data, we're actually letting the data do the talking. And, and, and there are others who say, no, 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 you have to have a hypothesis, you have to test the hypothesis and follow that through. So that is not fixed, I mean, this, is, this continues to be a, a continuous dis discourse. And complexity versus generalizability and universality. You could come out with a, a universal result, which is simple, or you could come out with a complex result, um, um, that, is that is universal, but can't be used in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, in, in terms of intervention. Simple could be wrong. Complex is un unusable. So again, the dialectic is between complexity and simplicity. What is the right choice in a particular set of contexts? And then, of course, the generation of health versus generation of illness. They're two very different things. You can measure illness discreetly. You can measure proxies for illness, but then you make assumptions that they really are proxies for illness. Um, whereas the production of health is far more complex. It's not just an absence of disease. So it depends what the study is for. If it's about the eradication of disease, that's one thing. If it's about the generation of health, that's another thing. And there are policies about both things. I mean, you know, in, in, in the UK, there's great concern about um, you know, how you can maximise health and well-being you know, across all aspects of life. Um, okay, founding effect uh, event of epidemiology um, before the 20th century. Uh, while I've said there's been all of this ecological work, really modern epidemiology will start in the 1850s. So this is, this is Soho, uh, it's Piccadilly, Piccadilly Circus, this is Regent Street, this is London, this is Soho in here, this is Broad Street, there's a plaque there where, they, where the Broad Street pump used to exist. Um, and there was one clinician, John Snow, who, who uh, was mapping out the, the course of, uh, of cholera in Soho in this particular cholera pandemic. 
and the greatest concentration was around this pump, not this pump, uh, not that pump, not that pump, it was this pump. And uh, so the, 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 the founding myth of epidemiology goes, modern epidemiology goes, was John Snow went over, took the handle off the pump, and that was the end of the epidemic. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, and in fact, in fact, that was the case. I mean, it was very much uh, empirical observation relating patterns of disease to a particular phenomenon. And, but in order to do this, he had to have some idea that water was an issue. You know, in the bigger context, water really was an issue um, in, in, in London. Uh, the political ecology contagion <laughs> in London before that time was in relation to a new phenomenon, which was the fact that there were, there were huge levels of infectious disease, waterborne disease, that really came um, because the wells and conduits of this before the 17th century became uh, inadequate for the growth of the city when the city modern was. 17th, 19th century, of course, we know what happened. Britain got an empire, the place grew, um, huge numbers of people migrated to London, and then suddenly all the usual ways of dealing with water became inadequate. You could look at similar places in the con- contemporary developing world now. You could look at Kathmandu, you could look at Delhi, you could Mumbai, Dhaka, and Bangladesh, and so on. Of course, all changing those places, but. Um, house waste was, was um, moved by sewer to the Thames. These were open sewers. If you ever go to Cambridge, and go down Trumpington Street, you'll see water courses pouring down side street, very pretty, near the, the Fitzwilliam Museum. Those are actually, those are actually uh, pre-17th century open sewers. Uh, they, they look very fine now, but they weren't very fine at a, in an earlier time. So they've still got them in Cambridge. They, I don't know if they by accident or design, but they've still got them. But they pour clean water down there now, of course. Uh, but... House waste were poured by sewers and tents. Of course, people wouldn't separate the water they used for, for washing from the water that was used to, 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 to go into the river. Geography of poverty, people lived by the river. Again, squalid settlements down by the River Thames, um, where, uh, of course, the water that people used to drink, the poor water that people used for washing, all was contaminated by this growing city of London that was pushing its effluent into, into the river. What made matters worse? <coughs> flush toilets. Thomas Crapper, who invented the flushing toilet. Really. Uh, um, before that, people used cesspits. A modern invention dumped waste, more waste into the river. So one aspect of modernization meant that in your, you know, around your home, you could defecate and dump your refuse to where the poor people lived. Uh, you would be exposed to it. You need to be wealthy enough to have a toilet in the first place. But what would happen would be, would be a compounding of this problem down by the, by the, by, by the river. The 1850s, the great stink of 1858, when the Houses of Parliament had sheets of lime over their windows because actually it was an intolerable place to be. Um, people, people were dying and, and uh, you know, when it affected the politicians, they said, we have to do, have to do something about, something about, about this. Um, and all of this was before um, Jon Snow. What happened was a serious piece of, 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 of uh, physical engineering and social engineering. Political ecology was embedded in public health practice in the mid-19th century. This picture's in the National Gallery. It's by Monet. I mean, Monet spent a bit of time in London and painted some amazing paintings of London. Red skies, you know the red skies in London that he painted? If you're going to have a look at them in the National Gallery, or in Chicago, or, 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 or in the Metropolitan New York, uh, fabulous paintings. Those red skies you won't get anymore because those red skies were largely, uh, largely a relationship between between a, a pale sunlight in winter and huge atmospheric pollution in early, early, early industrialization. You won't see those skies so readily anymore. Anyway, Victoria Embankment, as you'd see the river now, all of this was social engineering. All the poor people were kicked out of their locations. Um, the river was tamed. 
um, sanitation was about about you know ensuring that the the, the, the river was cleaned up. This is a picture of a, of a, a, of the Thames down by where St Martin is, that Southwark Cathedral, and it shows ice packs. You won't get that now. People don't skate on the Thames anymore because it flows too much. Down at that point, it was three times the size it is now. You know because it was all floodplain. All of that was controlled by the, the city. Uh, you'll see this, so there's a park by embankment, and you'll see this particular statue and have a look and you can impress or bore your friends with, with your newfound knowledge. Um, the public health of the time uh, was therefore a regulatory, uh, a regulatory force. It was something that could be done in the face of, 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 of taming disease, taming disorder. Um, there are all kinds of regulations that could be put in place. This is one extreme one, Typhoid Mary, another piece. Who knows Typhoid Mary? Okay. One person. Okay. That's good. Now you all know. She was an asymptomatic carrier of, of, of typhoid the, uh, fever, uh, fever path, pathogen um, in, uh, in New York City. She worked as a cook. Um, of the eight families that took her on, seven contracted typhoid fever. She didn't wash her hands. She didn't feel there was a need to it. Um, she had cultures of her urine and stools taken forcibly uh, when she was sent to prison, and they revealed typhoid salmonella. Um, at the time, one, call, one, one way of treating uh, people who were, were carriers of typhoid fever was to extract um, gallbladder, where there was a concentration of typhoid. Uh, when she was deemed a carrier, um, she was uh, held in isolation for three years in a clinic, um, and, uh, and so she was incarcerated for uh, being a carrier and not, being, you know, not complying to, to, uh, to uh, state controls. You can compare this to um, uh, tuberculosis in the US now and um, people who seriously declined to take on direct observed therapy for tuberculosis could be, could be incarcerated, for example. So, so disease can often take on those kinds of, those kinds of, of, of regulatory roles. Quarantine, actually, go back to Genoa in, uh, in, in, in medieval times. I don't know exactly, but the, the, the idea of quarantine was for 40 days, any ship coming into the port of Genoa would stay out of port to see if anybody was going to develop the plague. If no plague developed in 40 days, they could come into stop. It was a way of, you know, pres you know uh, preserving the city um, against against disease. Carry on to the pre present day, and regulatory aspects of public health continues. This is CDC, Centers for Disease Control. What are the kinds of things that CDC is looking out for now? Antimicrobial resistance, chronic viral hepatitis, food safety, HIV AIDS, <coughs> safe water, <coughs> vaccine preventable diseases, zoonotic and vector-borne diseases, but not just within the United States, but now actually out with the United States because things have globalized. A disease, for example, like uh, uh, SARS could move from China to Hong Kong to Toronto very, very quickly. And how do you, how do you control and, 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 and regulate those things? Moving to chronic disease, uh, chronic disease epidemiology, very very quickly in the last in the last few minutes, um, the ways in which individuals are nested within levels of risk factors. I've mentioned this already that uh, uh, that uh, ecoepidemiology, for example, has attempted to nest nest individuals. Uh, if the risk is located with individuals and individual individual lifestyle factors, so so called. There are a number of conditioning issues and a number of strict structures. Social and community networks, because networks are important, and social, uh, social capital is important to be in protecting against disease. And then living and working conditions, education, work environment, water and sanitation, healthcare services, and so on. All of these uh, form the frames around which lifestyle can be built. So in terms of public health interventions, at what level can you intervene? There are, you know, the, there, there, are, there are levels of intervention. At the lowest level, nothing. Do nothing. At the highest level, you can put somebody to prison. So in between that, uh, the discourse is always about, should it be the individual responsibility to deal with this condition? Should they be good citizens and, be, uh, uh, and avoid these risk factors for the, for the sake of themselves and for the sake of the state? Or should there be something at an intervening level, the community level, that should be, should be modulating that risk. 
At the highest level, should government intervene in some form of structural change that will reduce the risk to the population as a whole? Should they change some aspect of, of water and sanitation policy? Should they change housing policy? Went to the UK in the 19, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Housing policy, eradication, clearance of the slums, of the, of the poor settlements and replacing them with so-called modern housing, much of which now is falling apart, I should say, uh, was one way of decrowding some of the cities and was seen as, as uh, not just being you know, a, a modernization but also having important public health, public health outcomes. So always the discourse, at what level do you intervene? Sometimes it's a bit of a cop-out to say it's your individual risk because sometimes structures militate against you being able to, uh, to, be able to act like a, like, a, like, a, like a good citizen. And then we can invoke things like structural violence, for example, because those structures, called farmer structure, uh, those structures um, then militate against the possibility of being able to break out of those poor health patterns in many, many different places. Um, the rise of chronic disease as a major cause of death have led to a whole range of, uh, um, uh, of, uh, of ways of thinking about disease. And some of this is, this is a paper by, by Abdullah Dar, um, who talked about the grand challenges in chronic non-communicable diseases. And, and worth reading, just to show this to sensitize you, uh, Dar et al. 2007, um, where the different kinds of interventions that can be taken go from raising public awareness, enhancing legal and environmental policies, um, to modifying risk factors, the list goes on. Engaging business and community, um, mitigating health impacts of poverty and urbanisation, reorienting health systems, they are really uh, all grand challenges. Easy to say, but difficult to be able to change. There are often moral issues and issues of social justice associated um, with the possibility of any of these changes and with the allocation of, of resources that go with them. So that's on the reading list. Finally, three minutes about ecology and uh, epidemiology. Morris King wrote in, uh, in, in, uh, in the 1960s about sustainability and health. Health is a sustainable state. He writes, health was originally an individual concern, then a concern of the family, and then of society. More recently, the World Health Organization has introduced the concept of primary health care, all current concepts of health focus on the present in that they take no account of either future individual health or of the health of future communities. In effect, concepts of both individual and public health end with the death of the patient. In most parts of the world, the ecological threat to health is a problem for the future, not for the present. It can be argued that any concern with the future must be the luxury of those who are healthy today and cannot be a concern of the world's present sick and starving. Surely the response is that... Of all the criteria of human achievement, none more universally commands respect than the transcendence of self to care for what is not oneself. Care for what happens in the future is merely an extension of concern for what is not ourselves. He was the first to seriously draw attention to something that is now very, very current, which is, which is that um, environments are changing, population has grown, and to talk about... Um, individual lives and to talk about uh, uh, present day health without considering um, the health of the next generation is hugely problematic because it can't be assured. You can be healthy, but at what cost? At what technologies? With what technologies? With what resources? And so on. So you could sustain good health, but is it sustainable into the future? Because will the whole planet suffer? So a whole range of approaches to this, environmental health, ecosystemic approaches, infectious disease ecology, natural resource management, um, business and organizational behavior, community development, all of these come together in thinking about um, how to uh, deliver sustainable health. The Millennium Sustainable, sustainable Health Objectives also exist um, and they haven't been met, but it gives a good working model and a set of ideals, even though they haven't been met. What's interesting in this is that human well-being, poverty reduction, good health and so on, also is an outcome of ecosystem, ecosystem services. Water, food, climate, um, disease regulation, 
and so on. All of these things feed into. Um, and many of these ecosystem services are things that we have traditionally taken for granted. Clean water. Well, you know, I, I've done something criminal today. I used the toilet and I flushed it with water, with drinking water. That's criminal. Because there are people in the world who don't get, uh, uh, get clean water, not even to flush their toilets with. Um, you know, the question, you know, should all water be up to a certain standard? Everybody should certainly have, you know, clean water to drink. So it's a question of, you know, reappraising the kinds of ecosystem services that we have. I've mentioned eco-epidemiology, Melvin Susser at uh, Columbia University. Um, they saw human beings as components of complex biological and social systems. Uh, ecological constructs are needed to deal with complexity and interconnectedness of the human biological world. And such analysis needs to incorporate hierarchy of scale, complexity, multiple interaction between and within levels. Um, one of the issues, the idea of epidemiology hasn't gained traction, um, even though the idea is a good one. Uh, but what it has done is point to ways of thinking about hierarchies of scale, complexity, and so on. They're starting to be thought seriously about, about epidemiology now. In a way, that's a 1996 idea, and, and nearly 20 years on, some of this may start to gain traction because the methods are increasingly in place to be able to deal with some of these, these things. Because at different scales, different phenomena seem to be, uh, levels of scale seem to, be, seem to be important. Ecological public health, I'd encourage you to read the book, or at least parts of the book, by uh, Raina and Mang, um, which they would want to re-ecologize public health um, and reorganize public health around ecological pr principles. Material, biological, social and cultural dimensions are important and they would see public health as having the task of transforming um, the relationships between people, their circumstances and the biological world of nature and bodies. So um, they'd refocus public health actions onto conditions on which humans and their ecosystems um, uh, interact. So again, a call to complexity and to, to interdisciplinarity. Um, what are the things that, that move backwards in terms of progressivist schemes? Emergent and resurgent infections. It's not a straightforward narrative. Public health now has to deal with both, both the infectious and the re-emerging infectious um, and, and, and the chronic disease. And finally, um, I've talked about demographic transition, epidemiological transition, nutrition transition as progressivist schemes. Uh, there is the possibility that with resurgence and so on, these progressive schemes will start to flow backwards as well. And then it's not just a case of them flowing backwards, it's the fact that there's flow forward and flow backwards in different places, and sometimes there will be looping effects within, the, within this model. So there's complexity even within something that looks as simple as this. Thank you.